Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The War on Cancer was launched in the early 1970s, set the stage for a massive influx of new ideas in fighting the disease of cancer. Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, America's leading cancer research center at the time, was assigned the task of testing an unconventional therapy called Laetril in an effort to curb the public's false hope, quote-unquote, in the alleged quack therapy. Robert W. Moss, a Ph.D. and a young and eager Science writer was hired by Sloan Kettering's Public Relations Department in 1974 to help brief the American public on the center's contribution to the war on cancer, and hence the 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 uh, the guts, if you will, of this uh, fantastic new documentary called Second Opinion Laetrile at Sloan Kettering. We are joined by the director editor Eric Marola. Eric, welcome to Film School. Uh, great to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, this uh, is, uh, uh, how can I start with this? This, in some notion, oh, I want to, well, I know what I want to do. I'm going to start as the film does, okay? I'm going to, because I think mm-hmm. this disclaimer is important. I, obviously, it was important for for you to put it at the top of the of the film, and I, nothing in the film, or I guess in this interview, should be in, misinterpreted as encouraging patients to take Laetrile or how do you say it? Am, am, amygdalin. Amygdalin. I knew how to say that. I don't know. Amygdalin and any other purported cancer treatment. Those who are even who know or even suspect they have cancer should promptly seek uh, services of a licensed healthcare professional, including whenever appropriate medical radiation and surgical oncology. Uh, I just wanted to do that because uh, I, I I understand kind of the, the the legal sensitivities to all of this. But it does speak to the heart of all of this, in my mind. The fact that this disclaimer was at the top of your film, it talks about this, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, this uh, hypersensitivity that we seem to carry around when it comes to uh, alternative medicine and medications. It's a long way of saying, how did you get involved with this, uh, this uh, documentary? What brought you to do a, a documentary about this? Sure. Um, first, I'll say just uh, based on what you just said, at the end of the day, the movie is a whistleblower story, you know, and yeah. it's just how it affected him, how it affected his family. And it just happens to be about, you know, the very controversial Israel. But uh, getting into how I got into this, it's um, it was his book, Ralph Moss, the story of, of this film uh, about Ralph Moss's experience at Sloan Kettering. He, once he was fired for what happened, he wrote a book, and it was called The Cancer Industry. Back around 1980, I believe it was published. It was in all of the bookstores. It was a pretty big deal you know, for, for its genre, anyway, back in the day. And so I was living in New York City, walking by the Strand used bookstore, and there it was on, like, sort of the outdoor cheap bottom bin bargains. <laughs> and it, the title, The Cancer Industry, caught my eye, and this was back, I guess, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't know, I was just fascinated by it, and I couldn't put it down. And I actually had 
tried to confront Ralph back then, back around 2007, to make this movie. Um, I wasn't successful then, um, frankly. Um, I don't blame him. He was sort of tired of the story. And at the time, I had no documentary credentials in the sense that I had made my own yet. Mm-hmm. So I went on to make a couple of other movies, actually still based on his book. Another chapter in the book is what led me down the other direction. And then now here I've come around full circle after this is now my third documentary, and it's about Ralph, who, which of course got me into all of this. So it's very special to me personally, actually. Yeah, so you've really closed the circle in, in a manner of speaking with, uh, with that sure. encounter with Ralph. Interesting uh, about it. Um, what's so fascinating about this whole thing is um, Ralph is the centerpiece of the film, and you, as you said, it's a, it's really a film about a, a whistleblower, um, and that's who, that's what he is in this. What an articulate, well-spoken, and um, and his ability to really weave together a lot of different strands in this story really propels this documentary along, and he just does a wonderful job. Um, so. What was it that, uh, what over, how were you over, let me start over, I am having such a hard time today, how were you able to overcome his reluctance to move forward on this project? Was it because of the other documentaries Um, and... I think that helped, uh, the fact that I'd done a couple of them. The first one was fairly successful. Um, it had some decent reviews, and yeah. it ended up on Netflix and got, you know, a sort of a general decent distribution deal. And I sort of, my name was sort of out there, I was sort of on the map, and uh, like it had a lot of buzz. Even people like Russell Brand and Tony Robbins tweeted about it. Like, some films I just tend to, you know, make it, you know, for a short period. Mine was one of them. That helped. I also think, too, I just, um, I approached him differently. Back in the day, 2007, I uh, hadn't really had any experience in trying to, like, sort of confront or approach someone or pitch the idea of making a movie. And perhaps, who knows, I may have kind of gone about it sort of haphazardly or clumsily, (laughs) you know. And anyway, um, but when it came time to really... um, ask him again. I don't know. Maybe the timing was right. It was just sort of the planet sort of aligned and it just worked. You okay, know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad yeah. you did. Uh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, he, so let's so lay it out. So he has, he actually has another job. This is in 1974. He's working somewhere mm-hmm. else. He happens to get wind of an opening at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, and on sort of a, a lark, he decides to apply for this job as in the PR department, the public relations department. Um, mm-hmm. So and he gets it; he gets the job. Now, set up for our listeners a little bit what how the importance of uh, Sloan Kettering in the medical landscape. Sure. At the time, this is really an interesting time in America's history when uh, the Nixon administration launched the war on cancer. And uh, Sloan Kettering at the time was the number one cancer center in the nation. It's still pretty much up there uh, today. MD Anderson in Houston, Texas has sort of taken the number one spot. But uh, anyway, um, at the time also, around the time the war on cancer was enacted, Newsweek even reported that there was some 70-plus thousand people going across the border into Tijuana, Mexico, to, to acquire Laetrile. And if you did looked at the numbers, it's sort of like a, a fifth or 
of the whole cancer population at the time. It's a lot of, you know, one in five people going to Tijuana for cancer therapy. So with the launching of the war on cancer, um, it, would, it seemed to make logical sense to test it formally. In fact, um, a man named Benno Schmidt, who was a part of President Nixon's cancer panel, or the head of it, was also a board member at Sloan Kettering. And at the time, 43,000 Americans were, had petitioned the government to formally test Laetrile. So under, frankly, under a little bit of public pressure, and the fact that they launched a war on cancer, um, Sloan Kettering was assigned the task of testing Laetrile. Mm-hmm. So going back to your uh, question, you know, here Ralph has just been hired at Sloan Kettering. He has seen, you know, the things on the news about people going to Tijuana to get Laetrile. It was his firm belief, just as anyone just, hap- you know, sort of uh, passively watching the news, that this stuff, Laetrile, was probably a quack remedy that is sort of one of those things that we've seen, you know, probably a hundred times in um, our lives that just no one took seriously. So here he is working at Sloan Kettering, hadn't been there, I don't even think a few months, was asked to interview uh, one of the center's oldest and most distinguished scientists. It was a, it was a Japanese fellow named Dr. Kanamatsu Sugiyura, and he had been at Sloan Kettering for 60 years. That's six to zero. And um, he's interviewing him because he's up there in age. He's uh, sort of a fixture. He had been uh, a, an, an original co-founder of chemotherapy. Um, he actually pioneered the idea of using mice to test new chemotherapeutic drugs. He was, he was just a fixture. When he, his obituary, for instance, was published in the peer-reviewed literature. Like you know, That's how important the guy was. Yeah. So he's interviewing him, and he asks him you know, at the end of the interview, what are you currently working on? What are you investigating right now? Um, you're here every day. And he says, I'm working on amygdalin. And, of course, it took a minute for Ralph to realize that's the same as Laetrile. And, by the way, Laetrile was sort of the brand name for it that someone tried to create and make it proprietary and patented. But what we're talking about here in this whole story is just standard amygdalin. It's a, a, a processed extract of apricot pits. Anyway, so... Uh, he asked Dr. Sugiyura, you know, what is there to investigate if, it, if this therapy doesn't work? And, you know, just to short, shorten the story, uh, Dr. Kanamatsu Sugiyura presented to Ralph his Laetrile data. At this time, it had been going on for two years. There was over four years of total studies that he did. And um, Ralph was just blown away because it actually was working. It wasn't a magic bullet. Uh, it didn't stop. It had trouble penetrating the hard tumors in the mice, but it did a remarkable job on the cellular level by stopping cancer from spreading and then, of course, preventing it to begin with, which is, of course, the name of the game. Yeah. Uh, stopping the spread of cancer is really, um, you know, what kills uh, – the cancer spreading is what usually kills 90% of cancer patients. I'll stop there for a second. Yeah. Uh, no, that – yeah, you're uh, – so, go ahead. Uh, uh, that's all. So, okay, so – Anyway, he was just blown away by this, and he went back to his superiors, um, you know, shocked and stunned. And, uh, and his superiors, you know, said, you know, keep an eye on this guy. We don't want this thing to blow up and blindside us. But it was, that was it. It was all sort of internal. Um, everybody sort of knew, people that knew, knew that Laetrile was working quite well. It stopped the spread of cancer 80% of the time in repeated experiments and different type of mouse systems. It just kept repeating itself. 80% of the time, no metastases in the Laetrile group uh, versus the group that they compared it to each time with using saline solution. So, you know, after a couple of years of this, Ralph's become close to Sugiyura, keeping sort of tabs on him. And then suddenly, unannounced to Ralph, um, the heads of Sloan Kettering starts uh, basically 
saying the opposite things of the public. They say, they say, oh, no, we found no evidence that this has worked. Um, you know, they kept being quoted over and over again mm-hmm. that, that everything they found in their studies under Segura had come up negative, which is very confusing to Ralph. Little did he know, which I actually lay out in the movie's timeline, is that they had had two meetings in Washington, D.C., yeah. which is sort of unprecedented. All the heads of Sloan Kettering uh, jumped on an Amtrak train, goes, they go down to D.C., and they meet with all the top uh, figures of the FDA, the American Cancer Society, and the National Cancer Institute presenting this data. And we have uh, proof of this because we got it through Freedom of Information Act. We got the minutes of those meetings, the dates, who was in attendance, and the, sort of the notations of what was discussed. And the first meeting in 1974, uh, they were very excited about it. They were basically saying, look, we need to go to clinical trials with this. This is incredible. We could even set up uh, a clinical trial in Mexico, and there was correspondence recorded in this meeting how they had been speaking to some of the Mexican clinics um, to see if they could set up a trial there. Yeah. Uh, why they chose or thinking about Mexico is weird, but maybe perhaps they knew how controversial it was. And then they had another meeting a year later, and after the second meeting, uh, we don't have any like definitive uh, explanation as to what occurred at that second meeting, um, only the notes that was said. But this, by the way, the second meeting was 10 times as large. It, ha- it had all the, the who's who in cancer therapy at the time, uh, the leaders of, the, uh, of, of that uh, genre of our government. And, um, but everything turned on a dime. The moment they returned from the 1975 meeting, all the heads of Sloan Kettering began to lie about what their institution had found. And Ralph being the assistant director of public affairs, he was the person who had the responsibility of dealing with his own conscience while he is writing lies that they asked him to write. And as you can imagine, his conscience got to him and everything backfired. And he began to leak the documents unsuccessfully to the mainstream media. And um, eventually it all came to a head after really a couple of years of Ralph living a double life uh, you know, under his phone Kettering hat during the day, um, and then in the evenings and the weekends working as this sort of anonymous uh, document leaker. And mm. in fact, it got such a machine of leaking these documents, he created an underground newsletter called Second Opinion, which is why I titled the movie that. And it comprised of a, you know, a couple of dozen Sloan Kettering employees that all uh, agreed to work anonymously to try to leak this stuff to the, to the public. And by the way, you'll mm-hmm. enjoy this uh, on, a, on that note. So the newsletter Second Opinion was, of course, what they designed uh, and distributed in the 1970s. They would give you know 5,000 copies a month. There was only 4,600 employees at the center. So we decided it would be a good idea to resurrect it one last time. And we actually stood in front of Sun Kettering last week on Thursday, August 27th, and Friday, August 28th, actually the 28th and the 29th, and handed them out during lunch hour. It was an open letter to all of the employees, a uh, very, you know, very modest, very yeah. polite letter about this, and, of course, in relationship to the film. So it was quite fascinating. And get this, um, Ralph was on NPR in New York, and he mentioned that we were going to show up. And an, and an original member of Sloan, excuse me, an original member of Second Opinion heard Ralph on the radio and showed up and helped us hand out flyers. You know, a guy from 40 years ago. It was really incredible. Now, now, what was the reaction of the personnel uh, to to your handing out the the newsletter? Funny. Um, just how uh, it was said in the film back in the 70s, where Alex said uh, the uh, the nurses would take it, most of the general workers would take it, um, the uh, top administrators 
wanted to see everything, single thing that was in it. They were like yeah. really intense, and but the low-level administrators didn't want to see, be seen touching it, and that was absolutely verbatim. That's what exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, of course, very polite, um, but we sort of cornered the, the block where it was impossible not to notice us. And in fact, um, four <laughs> employees uh, from that day showed up at the theater because of that flyer. And um, and they've actually had a really positive response. It, the film does make them nervous for obvious reasons. I mean, this film could be. We don't want to have attacks on Kettering. It's not the institution that's at fault. It's a bad thing that happened. Uh, you know, f- nearly 40 years ago, with um, some people that um, you know behaved you know quite uh, inappropriately and immorally. But it doesn't. It shouldn't reflect the whole institution. But um, they realize, though, um, the most recent uh, documentary I, c- I can compare it to is Blackfish about SeaWorld. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm talking about? I, I, you know, I, yeah, that, I had him. Yeah. Yep. That movie, um, you know, was it wasn't too long ago. It was it was uh, um, made known that their stocks have tanked. The emissions are down terribly because of that documentary. Yeah. And um, we don't say we want to do that to Sun Kettering. That's not what we want. But what I'm trying to say is the employees were they they were totally taken by the movie, but they were, they got. They're just overwhelmed with worry, like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to our institution if this film gets on a larger scale? And by the way, we might uh, end up with a national run. It's going really well right now. I was going to ask you about that. In fact, you you've, uh, you kind of leapfrog my questions, and that is, uh, has there been an official reaction from uh, the people at Sloan Kettering regarding the film? Not yet, and that is really one of our largest goals with this. Um, in fact, we even have a change.org petition. We've got over 2,000 people. Basically, it's a, it's a carbon copy of the newsletter we handed out that, uh, at Sun at Kettering. It's an open letter from Ralph just saying, look, will you, you guys would please just come clean on this. It would do yourself a huge service as an institution. We can wipe the slate clean, clean the stables, you know, essentially. And perhaps we could take another look at this substance um, objectively and responsibly and maturely and try to put aside all the controversy and give it a fair chance in court. Let's test it properly on people and let's get to the bottom of it once and for all. So, um, th- so anyway, th- that's on change.org. If you go to secondopinionfilm.com, you can uh, see the, uh, the link to that uh, petition. But to answer your question, um, they haven't responded at all uh, as of now. Uh, we have made, I haven't made any attempts, but many radio shows we've been on have reached out to Sun Kettering, especially the big ones, um, before having us on. And they, they haven't released a statement. They sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe they're buying their time and hoping that this just goes away. We're not really sure what they're, what they're going to do about it. If, okay. Any, if anything. Okay, again, for our listeners, secondopinionfilm.com, that's where you can go. If you happen to already have uh, Film School uh, Radio as your you know homepage, then you can. You'll, it's there already under for news and updates on Second Opinion. You can go to that link. I also want to let our listeners know that, Eric, uh, you'll be at the uh, Music Hall 3 in Los Angeles tonight for the 6 o'clock and the 8 o'clock screenings. Tomorrow night, on Saturday night, that would be uh, for the 4 and 6 o'clock screening. And then on Sunday, uh, have I got that right? No, no, Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday, you're there for 6 and 8 o'clock screenings. And then on Sunday, you're there for the 4 o'clock and the 6 o'clock screenings uh, on Sunday. And that's the Lemley Music Hall 3. That's on Wilshire Boulevard. Um, and it's a terrific place to go see any film, and especially this one. Um, you know, I, I, one other, I, I guess... Uh, How's Ralph doing? Ralph Moss doing? Ralph is doing great. Um, as you saw from the movie, that was only shot a year and a half ago. Yeah, he he's, um, you know, he's 70 years old and just as smart as a whip. And as you said, he, he's, 
he's almost like a sort of a walking poet. He's just yeah. everything that comes out of his mouth. <laughs> you know, it's just like these perfectly formed sentences, and he just he's an incredible storyteller. And he's doing great. Um, he's extremely excited uh, at the success of this. As you can imagine, this is a story that uh, a part of his life that happened 40 years ago that really changed that really defined his entire uh, life's destiny. Yeah. You know, he's spent his entire life since this event uh, be- now becoming you know, one of the world's leading experts in complementary and alternative medicine and studying and evaluating both alternative and complementary medicine as well as the orthodox traditional therapies. And, um, and yeah, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm sort of really happy with its uh, success because, you know, he, Ralph, you know, took a chance and a lot of trust in me to bring the story to the public correctly, uh, considering it's a, such a, a big part of his life. And um, we've had like 90% of the reviews have been amazing. Uh, New York Times gave it a good review. We have nearly an 80% Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, New York good. City uh, was the first city, um, and they decided to run it for another week. It did well enough there, which was unexpected. We just expected a week in each city. And uh, now we're off to L.A., San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. And... Um, What's really exciting is, too, is that the AMC theater chain is giving us a shot in Seattle to see um, if to sort of consider this for a national run. We've, we've completed half the battle, got good reviews for a very challenging, uh, some, some, some very challenging and controversial subject matter. Actually getting good reviews uh, is exciting. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is um, yeah. he couldn't be more happy and excited because uh, I, as, as a guy, I'm all sort of. Uh, stunned at how well this is going, uh, again, considering uh, the nature of the project itself. Well, and and let's name some names in terms of uh, the people that would... Look, it's hard to... It's The elephant in the room is this idea, uh, as uh, Ralph articulates in, in the book, uh, The Cancer Industry. There's a lot of money in 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 cancer therapies and chemotherapy. The, 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 uh, there's just... It's just a what there's billions of dollars in this in this thing and this kind of uh therapy and yet uh, as someone stated in the film i've forgotten who said you know there's there's these you know seventy thousand dollars for your cancer tre- uh, treatment or there's a se- or there's something you could buy for 75 cents now i don't want to encourage people to rely again as you said at the top of your movie this is not a, a commercial to run out and try something that is uh you know un- un- unless you are getting the proper medical supervision but it is this idea that that there are some less intrusive more organically related treatments at least closer to our own body's ability to to uh to ingest and and uh, process it than are than we're being told about and i at least in my opinion and uh i think that the fact that they don't want to know more well let me ask you let me maybe this is a great a good question for you to answer as research regarding laetrile continued i assume somewhere other than the united states is it a has it become a more robust sort of uh, uh topic of inquiry uh regarding cancer um and its effects on cancer i'm so happy you asked that question because um up until literally august the 19th just just recently a couple of weeks ago um has been sort of dead in the water um no one there's some little bit of work in germany and china and actually uh, well, of course, now recently, too, in Barcelona. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is um, because of the debacle, the sun kettering, and because of just how it was just branded as this, like, horrendous quack snake oil thing that is just, you know, uh, you know um, it just no one in their right mind would ever touch it. Now, out of the blue, um, 
<laughs> we got, my Google alert went off because I have Leotril and Amygdalin and Google alerts, and so did uh, so did, it also went off in Ralph's end. And Germany, uh, two big universities in Germany, uh, one of them has produced 44 Nobel laureates. I mean, big top-notch institutions decided they wanted to test Leotril in vitro, start from scratch. Uh, and, of course, they called it amygdalin. And these were mainly urology sort of specialists that decided to do it. And uh, so they tested it in bladder cancer cells. And they just basically confirmed everything so Giura found. That they, um, they, that they just, you know, they repeated it six times in a row, yeah. knowing how controversial it was, knowing how much heat they're probably going to get for even touching this again. But it, uh, it tested through the roof. Uh, again, in vitro, it doesn't mean it's going to translate into humans. But uh, the point is, is that they did it. They repeated it six times. There are a bunch of very respected people. And it was published in a very respected medical journal. It was peer-reviewed by everyone in the oncology uh, you know, group and agreed, yes, this is a legitimate study. Boom. And they want to actually, Ralph Moss, as you can imagine, he reached out to those scientists mm-hmm. and uh, sort of you know, wanted to make communication with them. And they are very interested to moving forward with human clinical trials. Awesome. Now, this is just all being talked verbally. Nothing formally has been organized. This is also recent. But um, wouldn't it be incredible if uh, the Germans, you know, put together, say, a large randomized study um, and tested it properly? Again, based on Sigiura's findings that it worked well in the early stages, helping it, helping to prevent it from spreading uh, to become a, a, an aggressive, fatal, uh, you know, stage of the disease. At least in mice, if that could be repeated in humans. Um, um, how amazing and exciting would that be? Uh, going back to what you said, it's uh, aside from um, this being a safe and non-toxic substance that could potentially stop the spread of the disease, um, it's uh, very inexpensive. Uh, you know, it, the average cancer patient forks out you know at least a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, you know, around per year, whether the insurance company does or the patient does. And here's something, as you said, that. Uh, the quote you mentioned was actually from uh, one of the heads of Sloan, excuse me, one of the heads of the FDA at the time, saying, uh, sort of geek, in a candid situation, he said, you know, who's going to pay seventy thousand dollars for a new cancer therapy, for a new chemotherapeutic agent, when they can just get Leotril for seventy-five cents? Yeah. And that really is what it all boils down mm-hmm. to, at least according that's where I that's how I feel about it. And Ralph, especially, sort of living this for forty years and studying other therapies that have suffered similar fates and sort of died on the vine, the common denominator with all of them was essentially finance and how, whether they're, whether they're really natural substance that anyone could technically make in their garage with a good, you know, that was a good chemist and had the equipment where, you know, it couldn't be regulated by the FDA and controlled. Uh, I'm not comparing it to marijuana, but it's like the easiest synonym where maybe there's maybe half the reason that um, the government doesn't like people growing marijuana, you know, uh, is that they, they have no control over it. You know, people... You think about any other chemotherapeutic agent or any other drug that you must get through a doctor. You know, people can't just make that stuff in their homes. But Laetrile is an exception to that rule. Um, I'm not saying that if it was legalized, everybody would be making Laetrile. I'm just saying that it's a it's basically a waste byproduct of the apricot canning industry. They can't give up give away the source of the stuff, and it's just they just discard it. And um, here's this stuff that could. You know, be the source of something really amazing uh, in its contribution to fighting cancer. Well, so, Eric, fantastic! This is just a wonderful, and we haven't even really scratched the surface of, of how well told this story is. How great Ralph is! The footage of the press, the very famous press conference on June fifteenth. Uh, all of these things are play into what is a really remarkable documentary, and I am so thrilled to hear the reaction you're talking about and possibly spurring some research into this. And I, I, this is an incredible 
development and i i'm i'm so honored to have you on please people go see uh eric he's going to be at the uh, music hall uh this weekend friday saturday and sunday friday and saturday at six and eight uh p.m screenings and then the four and six on sunday thank you thank you thank you so much for the film and for your work and and thank ralph as well and and for being on film school really truly honored to have you on thank you hey it's been an absolute pleasure on my end too thank you so much take care you too. Hi. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.